Welcome to the WIFT podcast. This is Vanessa Kilday, Vice Chair of Women in Film and Television Ireland. On Tuesday 23rd of June 2020, I had the great privilege of hosting a WIFT online event in conversation with award-winning director Dervla Walsh. Here's a little reminder of her achievements in directing to date. Dervla Walsh is from Tubercurry, County Sligo. She is an award-winning director who has worked on drama series including most recently Tales from the Loop but also The Handmaid's Tale, Fargo, Shameless, Penny Dreadful, The Tudors, and much to her nephew's delight, the Netflix Marvel series The Punisher. She won the 2009 Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing for a Miniseries Movie or Dramatic Special for Little Dart. She directed Roald Dahl's As Your Trot, starring Dustin Hoffman and Judi Dench, a television film adaptation of Roald Dahl's novel of the same name. She has also directed several art dance films, funded by the Arts Council, in collaboration with Fergus O'Cahor, including Match and I'm Roger Casement. Walsh has been nominated for the Irish Film and Television Awards eight times and won twice for directing in 2011 and 2018. This event was supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Here's how our conversation went. I was hoping I might just jump right in the thick of it with you, Dervla, and ask you the question, why directing? Why did you become a director? And when did you know that's what you wanted to do? And were there, were there directors, were there female directors out there that you aspired to or other directors? But, but why, why directing? Uh, I definitely didn't know it was directing for, for a while, but I didn't know you could be a director. I mean, I grew up in a town that didn't have a cinema. Going to the cinema was an event, like my brother's confirmation or when people came and visited us and took us. So, you know, and it was all about when the RT Guide came out and what movies were going to be on at, at, at Christmas. So, so movies were an event. And I kind of grew up in a, in a house and in a town steeped with drama. So I really, you know, loved the stage. So I guess I thought that I was really interested in theatre. And um, of course, um, I was growing up in a place that theatre wasn't, wasn't a, a career. So I, I knew I wanted to work in creative teams and in collaboration. And as I say, without knowing yet, like back then, there, you know, there were no you know, I certainly didn't know any, any directors and definitely not female directors. So I, through a process of elimination, ended up on um, doing communications in, in DCU or NIHU Tech as it was at the time. And while there, I did my um, intro, the work placement in RTE. And it was, you know, what I was doing for the three weeks, everybody was on holidays and I was licking stamps for a talent show called Screen Test at the at the time and then my time was due to be up and I, you know, that, that was it. But the producers and directors came back after their, their, their summer break and the secretary who I'd worked with needed, needed to take her break and I, for some reasons, or I was the only person who knew how the stuff went into the computer. And so kind of by default, I got kept on. And then I just worked with, at the time, um, and I thought, uh, you know, I used to spend my, I didn't know anybody in lunch break, I used to spend my, or in RT, my lunch breaks, I'd go and sit in the studios and watch things being recorded and, you know, just ask people lots of questions and people were always incredibly friendly crews and, and helpful. And then I worked with, the director on the show was Anish Notaro, who went on to become my, my dearest friend and who has since sadly passed. But 
I actually, I thought I wanted to be a researcher because I thought that's what women do. And I just really, in watching what she was doing, watching her directing, watching her lead a team, watching her passion, and I, we, we became great friends and I really connected. And I guess that, that thing of like, when you see it, you can believe it and then realize that is actually what I want to do. I want to, um, I want to lead, I want to innovate, I want to, you know, find stories to, to tell. And, and at the time that was kind of a music program, so it was all about the, the visuals. And so that was the start. And then of course, I kind of worked all through my final year in college and it was the 80s and there was no work in, in Ireland in the late 80s and I worked with Granada TV. And then there I met another person, another woman who worked in arts documentaries and I worked with her and I, up, you know, as worked as a researcher on film documentaries and also a researcher on, a, on an arts show. And it was there that I really kind of got to get my, my hands dirty. I, I definitely thought one couldn't become a director, you, you know, that easily. But at the time, it, it was um, the late 80s, 1990 in, in, in Manchester. And the unions were, were kind of losing a power. It would never have happened in RTE, but a, a director got stuck in traffic one day and I was, there was an 80-piece percussion orchestra and we only had two hours with them and I um he got stuck and he said what well, I said what are we going to do we have to and he said um you do it and I said but I'm not a director and he said but you know what's happening much more than anybody else goes so I, I mean in a way that's how I started and I and I haven't stopped since and, and like anything once you do it once you do something once you realize um, you can and every piece I did after that I just kind of tried to do one thing differently so that that was that was the start but re- the start was actually realizing you could be and then that suddenly you are. <laughs> There's nothing like being thrown right in to make you uh, sink or swim. And you've obviously yeah. swam. So talk to me about the craft of directing, Dervla. What are the most imp- important elements to that craft it, it, from your point of view? What elements did you learn or can you learn? And what are more innate, the useful elements? You talked a little bit about training grounds there, but can you expand on that a little bit? Okay, gosh, there's a, there's, there's a lot in that question. In terms of learning the craft, I think it is collaborating and working with people you admire and people who know more than you. Uh, I think it's a big mistake to work, <laughs> to be intimidated by people who know more than you. And, and, and that, I'm, I've never been afraid to put my hand up and say, I don't understand that, will you explain to me? So, so in terms of the craft, learning by working with DOPs about, I don't know, cameras, lenses. I mean, you, you don't as a director need to know the difference between a, a 50 mil lens and, a, and you know, a, a, an 11 mil, but trying different, different things in different scenes and seeing how, seeing how things look. So you can definitely learn on, on the, the job like that. Uh, working with editors, how the rhythm of a story changes, how you can manipulate um, a story in editing, the use of music. So there's so much. So just working with people you admire and working with people who have ideas and who feel part of a team and um, costume, like how uh, the, you know, a, a costume person um, interprets the story, because we all read the same script and just what people glean from the script in terms of in terms of telling the story. Working with producers and writers who can think their way out of out of corners and you uh, you know and and watching and watching them work i think always being um open that there is another way i think that's so you can really learn learn that the craft hugely that way i mean so much about it is 
watching and listening and and letting other people be the best they can be or or facilitating that so i think that in terms of crap obviously lots of people go to you know film school and i would say i came out of dcu a, a jack of all trades and master of none and you can have the theory of everything but you know to you know really you know flying hours are are everything and then the things that are innate i think importantly because i think most of us and like any work that I'm doing now, really any, you know, lots of different directors can direct it, lots of different DOPs. So the thing that marks, and I always tell younger directors when they ask me, the thing that marks one me out from the next person, I think is, is your sensibility and just what you respond to in a story. And they're really innate things. And that's, that's really having a confidence about what you've absorbed through your own life, about your own, environment about how you listened to your your grandparents or friends tell stories how I don't know so much I mean this is why I think I loved the Dickens the Little Dorrit so much because you know um BBC have you know one one Dickens production is is better than the next and and Little Dorrit came after Bleak House and I was going, how on earth am I going to do anything different with this? And I thought in reading Little Dorrit, which is quite a rambling thousand page um, book where, uh, where Dickens was trying to make it last and last, like, you know, he was the first soap writer, is just thinking, I know all of these characters. Like the world of Dickens is like being from Tubbacurry, you know, because you grow up and you're, you know, besides the doctor's daughter, you know, one side of the, the, the school seat, the other, the traveler girl, the, you know, you go down the town, the supermarket, you know, you know everybody and it's, and it's very parochial and Dickens' work is like that. So it's not like you've been already streamlined into certain private schools or you're only mixing in a certain set. So, so I really kind of lent into being from a small place and, and the sense of community and also Dickens writes all his characters with such affection. So, so there was, so, so when I say what's innate, that sensibility of, I think, having a pride of place as opposed to a, 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 an embarrassment of place. So, so I think maybe part of why maybe some of the work or, you know, I kind of tran translate out of Ireland is I'm very comfortable and proud in my sense of place and in my Irishness and in a, in a kind of, I, I think, I, I mean, I really, really like to like characters and like an intimacy between people and how people and, and the drama, the theatre, why use three words when 20, you can use 20, you know, and so, so the, the, um, you know, we spend so much of our life, you know, I think trying to learn more, trying to be in other places, but sometimes actually looking at the place you are and looking around and realizing the whole world is in this small space and how that can translate. And, and of course, the one thing I haven't commented on there is script, I think, and story. And that's a real combination of innate, your joy of either reading or telling stories and learning the craft of how to tell them. And there's so many different ways. There's no right way to tell a story. There's only what is your accent of that story? And I think that's a, important to have, a, to have a faith in your own accent. And on that note, Devla, I imagine at the stage of your career that you're at, you get sent a lot of scripts. And I don't know how many of them you read, but a lot, I presume. What is it you're looking for? Because you're working across a huge amount of different genres. I mean, a lot of drama, but period, you know, Marvel and beyond. So what is it? when you're reading, what is it that you're looking for to strike a chord with you? 
Well, first of all, good writing shines. When you're reading a lot, good writing shines. But sometimes you can read lots and lots and there isn't good writing and you think, is it me? <laughs> like it's me rather than, rather than the writing. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, 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 there can be a lot of that because there isn't a huge amount of good writing. I mean, again, everybody can write a story, but what shines is, is uh, and I've been very lucky to, to pick up a, a, a couple of different scripts that went, wow, like Paul Abbott's, the first, the first episode of the very first Shameless. When I read that, I went, if I never work in this, I don't mind. It has been a privilege and an experience to read this, that, that opening episode of, I mean, it just was streets above anything I'd ever read. And another example of a script that just literally jumped out at me, the writing of it was um, Noah Hawley's writing in, in Fargo. They're just examples of, I think, contemporary storytellers, like reading and, and incredibly high-end TV or people who've taken their craft and have honed it incredibly for the small screen. And what's common to both those is it's character-driven, character-driven drama. So, so that's good writing. Um, but sometimes you work in something that isn't great writing, but you know, you're still look. So what I very much look for is to believe in the story, believe in the relationships. I mean, I, if I don't believe it, I just can't, I can't, I just, uh, yeah. I, uh, also you're looking, I'm always looking to connect with a character to relate in some way to, uh, to a character. So when I did The Silence, it was about a 15 year old deaf girl who witnesses a murder. I mean, I've never witnessed a murder. I'm not deaf, I don't. But what I related to was she wanted to, to live in her cousin's house and you know she was uh, you know feeling claustrophobic and living um you know with these kind of overbearing uh, parents and she wanted to hang out with her you know and that just reminded me of when I was a kid growing up and loving going on holidays to my cousins in in Dublin just a, a different and, and that period that we all go through of like somebody else's life looks you know much more exciting than so just finding something that roots the character that I can relate to same in, in, in Little Dorrit. Uh, I mean, No Holy writes extraordinary women. And so, so I'm always looking for something that, that I can connect, that I can root myself in and go, what would I do in that, in that situation? So, and are you visualizing as you're reading? Are you looking for something to create a visual scape in your mind? Or are you just honed on writing and storytelling at that stage? No, I think the experience of reading, it's exhausting reading. Um, and it takes me ages too long to read. I should read much, much, uh, much quicker. But it is because as I'm reading it, I can't stop visualizing it or thinking how would I you know how would I do that or where would that be you know if it's a I don't know a, a crazy car chase through turn, turnpike tunnel in, in you know New York and New Jersey and I'm halfway like seeing the imagery of that and saying can I do that because reading is all you know reading is oh my god that'd be so exciting to you oh my god I'd be scared stiff I don't know if I can do that do you know so your your brain is turning all the time filled with your own ambitions and your own insecurities and just there's two monkeys and they're always while you're while you're uh, reading and I think it's really important when you sit down to read that you can read the script in one sitting so that you get a sense of of the rhythm and, and also I, again it takes me ages to read because I know whatever I know in an hour's time or in three hours or in four hours time my life will have changed in some way because if I fall in love with the script that means I will kind of go hammer and tongues to work on that or you know be and if I don't, I have to kind of, I feel responsibility as to why it didn't work for me and wasn't me or, or, or was the script way, way too much, you know, procrastination, I have to say. But anyhow, um, I, I think it's when you can't visualize 
anything that you're going, oh, you know, it's a radio play rather than a, because you're looking to bring something to the writing. Uh, well, you're looking to be inspired, first of all, and um, if you can't, you know, to be inspired by the writing or what, or to find what is it in the story that speaks, that speaks to you. And, um, yeah. You, you hit on something there about um, women and, and female characters. And it, is that something when you're, when you're reading a script, are you picking it up thinking, who are the women in this story? Are, and how are they represented? Are they multidimensional? And is that, how, how important is that? Or is it story first and foremost? Story, so much happens without thinking in your head. Do you know, without analyzing it, because it's so exhausting to analyze. That's what we do all the time, we analyze. But the first thing you want is, is how a story is affected. Because you can read a relationship between, I don't know, it could be about two guys and, um, and you go, Oh, I mean, this relationship, there's an authenticity, there's a, our father-son or a father-daughter relationship. But you could end up, I love this, but God, it would be so much more interesting if that character was a woman or that character is feminine. You know, so, so you're reading something that's got potential and you look at the, the and certainly as a director and at the level I, you know, the, where I start, I'm, I, I still play some role in influencing the writing or certainly having an, a, a, an interaction with it. I mean, every project is, is very different. So, so change is, is still possible. So it, it, I mean, I instinctively am drawn to strong female characters. Now, is that because I'm a woman? Is that, you know, because of all these, is that because I've, you know, the, you know, that I can, tell more about um you know that i'm more connected to that character i don't i mean look we've just looked at normal people or read the book of normal people and the insight into connell is so extraordinary uh, as well as marianne and and so i don't believe you only can do one thing because you are you know uh, i mean but i feel a, a responsibility towards kind of having strong female are interesting complex characters i think that's it and i think you know you go through periods of reading very kind of generic women the women who are the the love object you want you want you want strong complex characters who are making difficult choices and who either suffer or survive because of them but it's you know you're, you're looking for the gray rather than the black and white and often in some scripts the gender is just way too simplistic in how black and black and white it is so um what i wanted to talk to you about was to 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 kind of move on from that you mentioned shameless which some people may not be familiar with the series but if you were alive and had a television at the time it was groundbreaking television to say the least and i'm not surprised to hear your reaction to the script it was the one that you had so how did you get that job did they come looking for you because they'd seen something you'd done are you pitching for that how do you get in and and leading on that leads me to another question which is when you were in the room and you know the meeting is for Handmaid's Tale or it's for Fargo at that level established shows as well Shameless is different I know but because we talked about this before because to me you're fearless you know and I've had the great uh, honor of working with you and I saw how fearless you are but you had a different answer and a different perception of what I thought about you but but it's still true can you talk about shameless going to and then maybe move on to being in the room and pitching for those super high level jobs well with shameless in a way it's a series of lovely accidents that 
had a sad ending and then had a good ending. So I got a first meeting for Shameless because the head of Channel 4 drama at the time had been the head of EastEnders and his best friend before that had been a line producer on Custer's Last Stand-Up, which was a kids' comedy drama that RT and BBC did it as a co-production. And I was the second director on the first series of that. And then I was the lead director on the second series. And the, his best friend was an English guy, well, Northern Irish, worked with us. And then when he went back to England after Custer's Last Stand-Up, which was a gorgeous kids' comedy series that went on to, to win a, a, a kid's BAFTA, but uh, John York at the time was, oh, I want somebody different. I don't want somebody BBC trained to do a special for EastEnders. I want somebody who doesn't have the voice that we're, that we're used to or not a trained BBC voice. And his friend said, well, I've just worked in Ireland and there was this director and she was, what well, he said, she was all over it. And, you know, basically he said nice things. So and um, that got me a meeting with John York. And then I, I went and I did a special Freestanders, which was Little Mo's murder trial, which was just one of the hardest things I've ever worked on. It was really, really, you know, it was a baptism of fire. But um, and John went on to become head of drama. And then I got this call to go for a meeting with um, with for Shameless. And I thought, my God, this is a phenomenal script. And like, how on earth have you know, how did this find, I didn't have any agent. I couldn't get an agent. Nobody would, would, would represent me or, you know, or I could get an agent who kind of was doing EastEnders and Holby, but I, I didn't want to get uh, stuck in, in soap. And, and the world is always trying to pigeonhole you as the sort of director you are. So I've always kind of fought, fought that. And so I was, wow, this brilliant. So I turned up to a meeting, but I met the producer and in Manchester, we walked around and she was awfully nice and, you know, was, well, I thought this is kind of strange. It doesn't feel totally real. Um, but, but anyhow, you know, so anyhow, I did the meeting and I said, she said, you know, what was your reaction to the scripts? And I said, oh, I thought this and I really see it as handheld and very, you know, it's very energetic and it's very up close and like this family are gritty and it would have a grittiness. And she went, oh, no, no, that's not the way we're going at all. No, 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 no. And I was going, and I went, oh, typical. I said, I knew I wasn't right for this. I don't even know. And I said, no, we're doing it in a locked off frame and be like Woody Allen, people will come in and out of frame. And I was going, wow. I said, that's an, I said, I would never have thought that for this, for this series. Wow, that's interesting. So anyhow, I went away and needless to say, didn't, um, didn't get the, the, the job and that's fine. I remember I was going through a really lean period at the time and I, I was either doing another drama, I started to direct a, uh, the AXA piano competition where I was learning to read scores and kind of directing an orchestra of, you know, seven cameras. And then I got this call to come back for um, another um, a meeting, to come to London and meet the producers of Shameless. And I said, oh, no, no, I've already done that meeting. They said, no, no, you, you have to come over. We'll fly you over. And like, you know, so, oh, my God, they fly me. That makes it feel so important. And um because the time I went for the EastEnders, and if I missed my flight, spent the night on the on the on the on the floor in the, in uh, Stansted. So I walk in, and there's kind of four men in front of me in this office in London, and they said, and I really didn't know who any of them were. You know, it turns out George Faber and Charlie Parson from, and then Paul Abbott was there, and then script editor, and uh, and I said, um, they said, so tell us about um, you know your your thoughts about Shameless, and so the four of them were just sitting in front of me, and I was 
oh, I, you know, I didn't, you know, you're doing it a completely different way to how I imagined it. And they said, no, no, but tell us how you, what you thought. And I said, well, I thought it would be handheld. I thought, no, 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 great, great. So anyhow, that was, that was fine. I was kind of in an, I'd never been in an interview like, like that before. And uh, anyhow, I was, I, I went home and the next day I got a call and saying, we'd like to offer you. So in a way it was such an accident because even though those producers had seen my, my CV first time around, they looked at it and they saw children's television, they saw an arts documentary in RTE, they saw, I had just, I'd done a, a drama, Anne Enright's drama, they saw music, they were just going like, what is this CV? It has a bit of everything. And I was like, you know, in, in Ireland, and I, I always think it's important to turn your weaknesses into a strength. I was just like, well, you know, I mean, my, my taste is eclectic. I have lots of different experience of documentary, of drama. And, but in the British scenario, unless you were doing, you know, all the one, you know, unless you've been doing comedy or working class drama, they weren't, um, you know. I want to move on towards those big name shows that we know that you've worked on, particularly Handmaid's Tale and Fargo. And Talking about going into the room and pitching for those jobs and are you intimidated by that scenario? And if, if not, why not? And how, how, tell us how. And also then just to lead on, there was a, there was a really interesting question in from Reege Cannon, which was to follow on from that, how much creative autonomy are you given when you're directing an episode of a series with an established and highly detailed visual template already in place? She's, she said she's thinking of Reed Morano, Colin Watkins and Vision for Tone and Texture in, in Handmaid's Tale. And indeed, Fargo was up and running by the time you were brought on as director. So can you talk about getting the job and then into the process of working on those shows? OK, so the short version of getting the job is, of course, there's an anxiety walking into a room, you know. So that's just like a basic human politics and, and, and vulnerabilities. So, and it is always intim- intimidating because you're walking into a room where everybody knows more than you about what they want and, um, and you know, what they think they want or, and certainly about the script because normally you've just read one script. So, I mean, Fargo and Handmaid's Tale are a good example of like how that happens. I mean, I always just initially just respond to story because they're obviously incredibly heightened. Both of them are kind of heightened worlds. And I, I, my interest is always in character much more than genre. And so, I mean, I, so the first thing is just responding to, to story and how I, you know, relate to it or how I can root it in because the thing that's, I suppose, common to both of those as well and hopefully common to most of the work I've done is how it feels emotionally real uh, um, and how it's anchored in in a real, you know, feeling. Uh, and then obviously, you know, whatever role music or lenses or whatever play in it after that. So, so yeah, so you, you pitch and, um, and hopefully you're kind of, I mean, it's, it is just like, like trying to find a groove without, you know, without, you know, I have to be honest about the, the script. Like, like a good example is I did a pitch for something last week. And when I read the script first, I liked because I did a quick read. And then when I sat down and did a much more analytical read, it didn't. I kind of went, oh, God, this feels a bit melodramatic. And, oh, I, don't, oh, I actually don't have any ideas. And I had a meeting coming up at four o'clock with an exec in L.A. And I was going... I hate this, you know, but I think I go through a love and hate, you know, um, relationship all the, all the time with, with things. And I was, 
but it was really interesting. In our conversation, we found something that unlocked an interest, like a, a take I had on the um, had on uh, on the script. And when I saw, he kind of went, "Oh, that's an interesting take." And it was it was. I'm, because I'm about to work on something in the genre of horror, I've seen I'm watching a lot of horror at the moment and I don't, um, I don't normally, you know, like it or, or watch it. And it's made me think about the script about the, the house being a character and them being kind of haunted and what is the history of a place. And when you're in a horror genre, you can easily, there's a spirit, you know, whereas when you're in something real life, you know, you have to stay in a, stay in a reality. But that unlocked something. He said, oh, it's really interesting you've mentioned horror because we were thinking of what in between the two timelines, if we had one actor play both parts. Now, normally you go, oh, that's, an, and, I'm a, and that just, that, that kind of opened a kind of a valve into that I was able to articulate because I was able to kind of find a take on the material to elevate it up from like everything I had been kind of hating about reading it, how it felt kind of too, too straight and, and too literal and, and too melodramatic. It kind of allowed a freshness of take, but it also allowed me to see that they were open to, um, to it being you know, having quite a, an, an innovative take on it. That was kind of something that almost happened, but it was a great example of how a meeting went well because I was dreading the meeting. And in some ways, that's not something you can totally prepare for because that connection has to be real for it to work on, on that level. And then, you know, who's in the room when you're pitching, say, for Handmaid's Tale? And then if you can move into that creative autonomy question uh, from before. There's normally always about three people. There's the showrunner, there's the, the, the producer, the hands-on the daily producer and there's the executive producer. So you've got three different, you know, sensibilities um, happening there and like, and then in terms of what autonomy you have, what I find in, in American drama in, in particular, because of how it's set up and, and, and how they run it, they really want you to come in and make it yours. You know, they're not, look so obviously if something's written by the same writer, the one production designer over the same cast, there is, a, there is a certain consistency that will always be there, that's in the DNA of, of the project. But they actually are, and, and Fargo is a definite, okay, so you're shooting on wide lenses and, you know, or, or um, when it was on Handmaid's Tale, there was, um, there was one lens that was called Lizzie Cam, which was always used when you were in her head. And she even acted differently when you had that. It was a wide up close, uh, 27 mil. And she said, "Oh, you have that lens out, and you, so, and that was that. But there was something about the width of that lens when you were up close and you put it on a certain angle on her. You you were in her thoughts, and and it was a much more subjective camera than objectively. Uh, Fargo, for example, they don't use Steadicam. You had to have a really good argument to use Steadicam. You know, there was he um, really liked kind of good solid blocking a fifty fifty frame and." Um, you know, clean singles. So that is part of the grammar, but also that's part of what I'm learning because obviously, you know, I wanted to work on Fargo. In particular, I wanted to work on Handmaid's Tale. I really, really wanted. I loved that book. I thought the first series was incredible. And I, I had been in LA and I did a week of meetings and each person as the week was going on were it's kind of, I couldn't believe it was, you know, they were kind of half my age, third my age, and uh, a lot of studio people. And the last meeting on the last day was kind of two o'clock on the Friday afternoon, and it was Bruce 
and um, Weber, the um, Handmaid's Tale, and he was in over in writing. And it was just so funny. Obviously, every other studio exec had got away for the weekend, and there he was still working in his office on a, on a Friday, Friday afternoon. And we just had such a good meeting. We, you know, we had great conversation about the, uh, you know, about the, the scripts, about, about the story, about us. There was just a wonderful energy. And I came away from me and I said, gosh, I said, I, 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 and he was so, he said, um, you know, he loved how I responded to things. And I came away and I said, gosh, it's been a hard week of meetings and I kind of feel an awful lot of them being wasted time, but I really feel I'm going to get that, you know, and I, and I really wanted to. And it never happened. And I was so disappointed. And I was like, felt really rejected. Like, and you take it personally, you know, what was it? Or like, oh, it's like, is that that American, you know, they, I believe the baloney in the room. Now, as it turned out when I then worked in the third series is Lizzie had become, uh, Lizzie, my best friend, Elizabeth Moss had become an exec producer in the second series and really wanted to surround herself by people she'd worked with. So she didn't want any, any new people. So, you know, there was no, there was no space for, um, for that. And then um, on the third series, there, I was recommended by 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 a couple of of people, and I came and worked there, and we just got on like a house on fire. I mean, she's just so so impressive. So um, so but but what I but what I mean in terms of autonomy. So there are certain rules, and the rules are more the grammar. You know, uh, there's the, the the grammar of the show, but you can do anything you want. Like they expect you to bring something. How do you want to shoot? Where do you want to shoot it? Um, like the last, you know, the last three scenes of, of well, oh, I suppose all the, the, not all that, but many of the scenes in, um, in The Handmaid's Tale I did, I could, came, from, came from me informing the script. Like I loved the idea of that, the prayer meeting at the beginning and the idea of that and the idea of the, the, the snow going and, and, you know, that it was kind of, was it a fantasy? Was it real? The ending, the scene on the, the scene in the Lincoln Center was totally different to how it was, how it was written. It was written completely, it was set in a hotel room. It was, so just kind of, I got to work with the writer about, I've seen the look, I'd never been to Washington DC before. And I was really obviously blown away by, by so much. And I said, you know, we will have one day shoot. This is what we can manage. Why don't we write this to, can you change the right? You know, it took a bit of, uh, but so, so that, that was an example of where there was, I, I was able to influence, but I worked with Lizzie on influencing because Lizzie has a lot of power there and she could see, she could see that I really got. And I think one of the things that, that the Americans see in the European directors is that we're not afraid of story and we're not afraid to talk to actors. And a lot of, uh, there are a lot of technical directors and it's all about what the camera does, how you can bam, bam. And, you know, I learned from the DGA this year that only 80% of American directors go into their edit. You get four days in, in the edit. Like, I, I mean, I would fight to be in, I did fight. I actually got the union involved to, because they wanted me to work remotely and I, I, I didn't want to, like I have, I have a right of being in it. That's now the American system, which is very different to, to the British and, and, and Irish system. But I hope that's answered. Yeah, no, it, it's a strange process to think of directing and not being present in the edit when they're so inseparable for us, I think, really here. The... Also inseparable and also because we take something to the end. Like the showrunner is God in, um, in the American system. You know, that is where the writer is king and the writer is the executive producer. And when you think about it, that's not the way 
it's been here in in, in British and, and 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 Irish. I'm like the the, the writer is king in theatre, but I think because we don't have the same, yeah, you know, the producer has much more king here and 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 on shows that you're working on in America and uh, recent shows that you've done, including uh, the big name shows that we know, are you? Can have you the possibility to bring your own HOD into that, your own DP, or is that already established? Uh, there's a question in there from a member and a great filmmaker, Cara Holmes. Do you work with the same crew all the time? If you can, DOP editor, or do you like to work with new people, new talent, uh, depending on the the project? And we also had a similar question in from Yara Waldeck, who's on the board of WIFT and she's a cinematographer. And what are the qualities you look for in a cinematographer in, in a DP? So I do tend to like to work, you know, when you've a good um, um, energy and creative experience with somebody, you do want to build on it and, and re- repeat on, on it. And, um, and in some cases you can take your HOD much more in Britain than in America. So for example, I had done, when I was starting out a short film with Ema Reynolds, she edited for me. And then when I went and worked on, not, sh- oh yeah, it was Shameless. I got um, her involved and then, you know, she worked in Funland and we had a creative relationship for, well, now obviously a director is on a show much longer than, um, you know, the editor or the DOP. So you can fall out of a, a, a groove. Oh, McPaul and I had a, a great relationship with on, um, on the silence. And so when you find, and also then different people have different, again, sensibilities and some people are more suited to, and that's really hard because I mean, I tend to make great, friends with the people I work with and um and so it feels like a rejection then if you choose one more than one more than you know one for some reason but it it really does kind of tend to come down to yeah just kind of a a certain a certain dynamic on 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 the job and what you're what you're looking for and sometimes you have to be quite political and when you're going on to you know because the producer wants to maintain a level of power so they don't want you to take all of your people are, they don't have, you know, who's their right hand, hand person. So there's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of giving and uh, giving and, and taking with, with that. Um, in America, obviously those systems are up and running and it can be the good luck or bad luck of the draw, you know, with, with how you, how you end up. And so you have to just find a groove very, very quickly. So I, as soon as I work in something, I, you know, start the conversation immediately with, with my HODs way, because again, on an American drama, you just get seven days prep and a four day edit per hour. Like that's ridiculously short. So I'm like, you know, from way before, you know, make, make contact my HODs, try and, you know, well now to be zoom calls but you know do skypes and page turns and because you want to get into this you want to get onto the same page very quickly yeah and i presume you want to uh have a creative something creative collaborative relationship going on as quickly as you can you want them to work with you and for you i imagine i'd like and we could talk yeah go on i'm just going to jump in there about handmaid's tale because on handmaid's tale it was i was the only new director on that series and then there was a new dop colin um was leaving the series because uh Oh yeah, he just had spent so much time away from his family. So he agreed to come back and kick off the third series if they allowed him direct one. So that happened. And so then I directed this other one and there was a, a new DOP, an English guy, Stuart. And so 
so the two of us were the newbies, the kind of the European newbies, and everybody seemed to know. I said, I said to Stuart, I said, I said, we have to, um, you know, we have to achieve two things on this. One is neither of us get fired because everybody seems to know what they're doing except us. You know, we had to. So, and then the second is how to make unforgettable pictures of, you know, a script that was in process. And we really found an interesting relationship, you know, in, you know, the script was still being, being worked on for various reasons, but we just spent time exchanging images, finding images we like, like I kind of came up with this theme. And so we were able to put a lot of things in place. And I like to work with the, with the DOP, I really like to work with people who like to prep because I like to be very prepped and have a plan A. And then if something better happens on the day, let it go. But, you know, know what we're, um, so being open to something better that happens on the day, but at least knowing what, what I want out of it. But, um, so I like people who are happy to prep and, you know, will spend a day of their weekend. And, um, and one of the things I like to do with the DOP is let's find an image for each scene that kind of, if we could only shoot one frame, what would this be or a color code or a, you know, a style and how something's shot. And then I make kind of thumbnails of all of that. And I have those as references on, on my script throughout because you have all these great ideas in prep and then in the pressure and stress of shooting, they can go out the, go out the window, but it's just a great way to remind yourself, this is what, this is what my ambition or aspiration for this is. And it also allows then when you're on set, because I want to spend all my time with the actors on set. I want the, the DOP and I know exactly in the first, this is my intention so that I, that he or she has gone off to, you know, whatever, whatever has to be done in terms of their work. And I'm, I'm free to spend the time with the actors and we both are clear. And sometimes just having an image is so that we don't say, hang on, I thought we talked about. So just anything that gives you a shorthand. And, and I think that's very important when you're working with people you've never worked with before, because a lot can mm. get lost and it's, it's, it's interesting um, culturally and, it's true. When you get to know someone, there is a, a shorthand of communication that cuts through a lot of stuff for you. But you've hit on something I want to go into. My next question actually leads in nicely is actors. Just to talk about that process of working with actors. And it sounds to me like, you know, I know I kind of hate when people say it's an actor's director, like everybody should be an actor's director, really. But that that's a side of it that I think you you love you talk very affectionately I think about actors I think you like them and there was a question in from uh, Claire Loy as well about we'd, we'd love to know and hear about your casting process because it's something that breathes horror into the, the daily lives of actors but how you go about casting and working with actors what's your processes and tell us more about that oh, I'm thinking as well I'd love to bring it back to Ezio Trosh as well, your film that I absolutely love. And working with Dustin Hoffman and Dame Judi Dench. And I've heard you tell a couple of great stories around that before. But talk about what you want to with actors, Dervla. We'd love to hear it all. Well, the key thing I'll say about actors is they're a good actor is amazing. And, you know, I think number one is a great script. Number two is a great cast. You know, um, a good actor can you know, they can do it. They're amazing. Like you can have all of this theory and all of this prep and, you know, the lighting can be this and, blah, and you know, you can have your rain machine, you know, whatever it is, you can have all, but if, if the, if the actor doesn't bring it to life, if they, if you don't see it in their eyes, if they're, 
technically not, you know, if they don't feel it, believe it, then, you know, it doesn't matter what the lighting and design is, a flat performance is a flat performance and you end up putting lots of music on it in the, in the edit to, you know, to, to, so that the music will tell us what to feel because the performance doesn't. So, so I've incredible respect for actors and it's really important to, to cast well, obviously. And um, my process very much is to, is to start with, to, to befriend them, to kind of hear their thoughts because an actor knows their character better than you do because they often, that's all they care about is their character. They actually, I've worked with actors who haven't even read what the other characters are saying in the, in the scene. That's a whole other story. But um, or I've worked with actors who go, why am I not in the last scene? And, you know, there's, 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 there's career actors and there's kind of craft talent actors. So I think, I, yeah, so they know more about the character than I do, but I probably know more about the story. And, the, and I, because I've spent time with the writer, you know, I can... Um, and also, what is it that I want to bring to, um, to like, how do I want, you know, what the, you know, how, how do I want to change what's normally done or, or create or find or find something. So the most important thing I do with them is I, every single actor that has a speaking or non-speaking part, I make sure I see them before, before going on set. So first thing I say to my first AD is I want you to find in the prep schedule time for me to do a face-to-face -face with every, every artist. And the first goes, what? You know, or the, the second goes, what? Like there isn't enough time. Like the last Fargo I did, there were so many characters. But we manage it. And I just do a page turn. I go through the script from beginning to end just from that character's point of view. And we read Dervla, Dervla, are you talking about an actual in the room face to face? Yeah. Or are you talking about a call or a zoom, but you're talking about in yeah. front of each other. Face. And if they can't do it face to face, if they're not around, because often, you know, they're flying back to their family or whatever, I absolutely insist on uh, like we do via Skype. But it is amazing that when they hear that that's what the director wants to do, they they make they make time and and space for it because a, they have to commit to what their take is, but also that, you know, so many, they come across so many directors that I, I like, I've, I, this has always kind of just reaped such, such rewards. And also they get listened to, and I basically sit in the room and we go through the scene. I tell them what, you know, what do you like? Or also, how do you like to work? Do you like to, if, you know, do you like to, you know, um, do, you know, do you like to be the first, you know, close up or um, do you like to go last? Um, you know, are you somebody who likes lots of notes or do you want to do your own take first? And, you know, or do you keep recording just tiny things that are so important to because every actor has such a different process. And I really learned that on Shameless. You know, all those actors were like one of the greatest challenges in Shameless was to bring so many. You had an RSC trained actor. You had kids from them. Um, from uh, Oldham uh, Theatre, you know, um, you had actors, you know, who came off, off the street, is to bring them all together and tonally, you know, I can't swear I kind of really learned about how everybody needs to be on the same, same page tone-wise. So, so anyhow, so, uh, you know, finding out how they like to work, because you need to enable people to do their best work, because if they're at their best, you know, that's obvious. So, then we just go through each scene and we just read it. And I go, do you have any questions? And we just maybe read, maybe once or, or twice is what do you think that means? Or, 
you know, or they'll ask a question that you go, oh, I didn't see it like that. Or it's something that they've misunderstood or I've misunderstood or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And you just go at the end of the meeting, my God, if we hadn't had that conversation, like I see the ground opening up for me in the set, like a 15 minute conversation on that scene there has saved an hour on set. So, so that's, so that's brilliant. So you can just like plant seeds. So like with you and McGregor, I spent a half day with him on, and he just liked to read, hear my thoughts, but not to over rehearse it. And Elizabeth Moss loved to kind of go through everybody. And even when, and when an actor doesn't like to, you're kind of, oh, that's interesting. They don't like to, but, you know, you learn something, learn something from that as well. So that's the, that's the most important part of the process to, to that you're both on the same page before. And then, you know, that if I have any ideas, if I say I might know how I'm going to shoot it so that they can have a thought about that. Or um, then, for example, in Handmaid's Tale um, with um, Elizabeth and Yvonne, that big two-hander scene in front of the memorial at the end, we were in Washington and I'd suggested that just the three of us meet there. And because I wanted them to feel the majesty of, of, of that place and, um, and we could go there under cover of darkness and people wouldn't, you know, um, know that it was who it was. And interestingly, neither actor wanted in that particular scene. I only gleaned this during it because they kept, mm, they didn't want to meet each other the night before in my hotel room. So I saw them both separately. And uh, that was just really, and they both had, you know, interesting takes on, um, on, it was really, really interesting. It was lovely. It was like being a commander, <laughs> you know, these two, these two officers were going into battle and they both had, you know, they had uh, different armor for how they were going to deal with it. But one thing neither of them had picked up a line in the script was you're empty. You're, there's a line where Elizabeth says you're empty. And neither had seen you're empty as me. Uh, my interpretation was that you're barren, you're incapable, you, you know. And, and it was such as, oh, I didn't see it. And then Yvonne was going, oh my God, like that's the greatest attack she has me on. I'm barren, like I haven't been able to. And she hadn't seen it, like, like cause she said, I think I win this battle, you know, because every, <laughs> and then, yeah, okay. <laughs> And uh, so, so that was so interesting that neither of them wanted to, neither of them wanted to see. And there was, yeah, anyhow, so we were, I was able to take what that, what that little competitiveness and tension was onto the set the next day, which was great. It must be very surreal to see what's been taking place at the Lincoln Memorial oh my God. In, in, in terms of life imitating art or maybe not quite but yeah I mean somebody sent me a picture of all of the um the National Guard that was it and then they did a split screen with all the um all the handmaids and how how weird that was and then interestingly in the edit of when I did my edit on on that episode you know the way it always they always put a piece of music that kind of resonates with what the theme is so Lizzie does her her monologue and it ends and then over the credits my editor put the Martin Luther King speech, I have a dream. Because where she was is actually on the spot of, you know, where, where he delivered that. You know, we had played that in the, in, in the scene. And it was powerful to watch this drama and then hear Martin Luther King, I, I have a dream. And actually just, 
now that Black Lives Matter is, is happening, my editor dropped me a note and she said, God, she said, if only we kept that speech. And I said, why did we lose it, by the way? And, you know, it was for, it was for various reasons. But yeah, so, I mean, talk about life imitating art. It- there's, um, there's a couple of other questions. I wouldn't mind going back a little bit as your trash as well. Just that sense of knowing you're going into a project, this is before you would have done huge big dramas. Like, I know you've done quite a lot at that stage, but this is a film and this is Dame Judi Dench and this is Justin Hoffman. You know, two kind of pretty epic stalwarts of the acting industry and how you approach that. And I just, I love the adaptation. I love Roald Dahl. I love this film of yours. You might talk a little bit about that and then I might look at some other questions that are coming in as well. Sure. I mean, Ezio Trot is a great example of where I say I like to read something and I believe that it's, I can believe it, that it's real. And my agent, I was, I think, working in Borge in New York and um, my agent had sent me this script. And Ezio, I didn't know the story as you trot, but Roald Dahl, obviously, you're interested in. And, and she pitched and I said, oh, it kind of sounds mad. It's either going to be really good or really uh, not. And obviously there was nobody attached to it. So as you trot was an example of where I sat and read about a man <laughs> who wins the love of the woman living downstairs through stealing her tortoise and pretending that uh, his little magic spell is making it grow bigger, grow bigger. Like the craziest scenario. And I just, it was like, you said like, do you visualize and how you, it was a great example of a script where I forgot everything about how you'd make it. So you start kind of going how, 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 and, and, as I read it, I just like what like it is picking up a Roald Dahl book. The the kind of the magic of it, the craziness of it, the the passion of it, and I just laughed and um and was so moved by Mr. Hoppy and Mrs. Silver um throughout, and ended and I said it was the first script I read it, and I called my agent. I said I have not a clue how I'd make this, but it just made my heart leap. And I said, I, I don't even know how to how to pitch for it yet, but oh my God, it's beautiful. So that's kind of of everything I've read was just so completely, uh, you know, is, is kind of breaks the rule of what you look for. Anyhow, that was one that when I went, there was five people sitting around the table. Oh my gosh, there was Roald Dahl's niece. There was the publisher. There was the BBC producer. There was the independent producer and there was the head of the agency. It was like... It was just, um, and I'm trying to think what was, because normally I kind of try and distill my thought or take into, I, I don't know, one one line or something about. And um, No pressure. In this moment, I can't remember what what that is. But anyhow, um, it, it actually was a good meeting. And they asked who my fantasy, who, who do I think I cast? I thought of Melda Staunton and Bob Hoskins who was alive at the time and anyhow they're going mm, yeah and um then they one of them said you know what about judy dench i was going well, my mind didn't even go to judy dench like of course why not judy dench but i that we should be so lucky to anyhow we went on and it took three years to make that and judy dench you know just loved it and was on board straight away but she had it was to shoot here in ireland and she had two conditions one is that um she work a five day week and the second that she's could sleep in her own bed at night so it's 79 and a dame and i mean i 
they're two conditions I aspire to. So that meant we just had to move the shoot to England. And my mum was ill at the time. And I just remember I thought I'd have to, I kind of pull out of it. My mother was going, no, you're you're not you've got to do it derveless so anyhow we had judy but we didn't have a match for judy and uh, you know we went through all sorts of men so we just couldn't get um judy and then when we started to try and make you know to find the location we realized how complicated it was it was such a complex you know the idea of how you get the tortoise you know architecturally uh, the places the balconies are are built you know, so that you can't see into them, so that there's some element of privacy. A place with a balcony is normally on the south facing side, so it gets the sunshine. However, you know, when you're filming, you want things to be north facing so you can control the light. I mean, it just turned out to be so uh, complicated. Tortoises have more rights than than, uh, than actors and like how you can handle them. So, um, and then we had to find a hundred tortoises. Anyhow, so year one, we got Judy, but we didn't find a match for her. And we needed more money to make it, so we pitched at HBO. And and then year two, uh, when we went back to do it, Dustin Hoffman had come up as an idea, and he just jumped at it. Now he jumped at the idea of working with them, um, Judy Dench. So then um, we had Dustin, and then we were about to go, and then uh, basically Dustin got ill and needed to take six, seven weeks off and delay it by. And then if we delayed that seven weeks. Judy needed a new knee. So then she was on, there was a dance scene. So it was just, so we ended up putting it on hold for a third year. So we finally got to make it on the, on the third year. But when I was going over to see Dustin and do a, a week with him of rehearsal and page turning, uh, I did time with Judy down in her house and uh, Dustin in America. So, and I was walking down this corridor to meet Dustin. Everybody, like people always ask, like, what was it? Were you intimidated? You know, anyhow. And all I kept thinking was if, I'm intimidated by him. Can you imagine how intimidated he is by me? He doesn't know who I am. He's had this brilliant career and then, you know, somebody's going to ruin his career in, 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 in 90 minutes. So we had this where we sat at the table and he really liked Richard Curtis and, you know, he did a lot of talking to Richard. We were sitting at right angles to each other and he started reading. He said, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And, um, and he's very, very funny. Like we became great, great friends. And he said, what, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, it'd be great if we could, you know, maybe start to read and take it from there. So he was sitting reading there and I was at right angles to him and, you know, you're sitting hearing Dustin Hoffman read. But in his first read, you know, you hear so many characters he's, he's played before, but I could really hear Rain Man. And um, I was going, oh God, you know, he's not simple, you know, he's not, um, uh, I had to like, that's not, that's not who he is. And so he reads three or four pages. And so he turns around and he says, so how am I doing? And like, I just remember going, Dustin, he's there just inches away from my face and he's testing me. And I was going, how now do the, whatever comes out of my mouth in the next 30 seconds is the most important thing. And I said, hmm, you know, interesting, it's really, no, it's good. I, I, I like it. I said, there's just one thing. He's not depressed. He's not depressing. He says, oh, he's not depressed. He's not depressing. Okay. Okay, all right, leave that with me. And anyhow, we went on for the week. And then at the end of the week, he took me into another room and he played something and he, he showed me, he says, what do you think? I went, yeah. And he said, you said to me at the beginning of the week, he's not depressed, he's not depressing. And I think he's him. And he played a character from, from, um, from something else to me. And I knew he had, he had the 
Yeah. So it was just so interesting to, you know, because they want to, you know. It was a moment. Every actor wants, yeah, they want to be directed. And and I'm working with him like, he just, he was like, working with both of them was like working with two kids. They loved acting. They were like two bold children. They were always telling stories. They were always, you know, being playful. And he loved, can I do another take? Can I, and, you know, I would always have my shot list worked out and my blocking. And, um, you know, one thing I learned here, you'll never show an actor what to do. They have to find it. And, and um, you know, you suggest like I know what I need them to do but they you know I, I can't tell them and uh, so he came in one day and he I said so um he said well you you do it you show me and I said Dustin I learned very early on you know never to show an actor what to do and he said but you know exactly what you want so why don't you do it and if I if I like it I'll steal the good bits and it'll be me and if I don't I'll do something else and I went Okay, so I went, well, I thought you might come in, then I thought you might do this, then I thought, then I thought you might sit here, then I thought you might come over there and you might, and like that, it was just so much, so much uh, fun because of course he wanted to do what you wanted, but he also wanted to make it his as well. And we had this very complicated scene where the two of them, um, it's the moment she realizes that he's deceived her all this time with the tortoises. And it's huge long, I think, oh God, it was a really, really long scene. It was like maybe six or seven page scene and it's down in um, her flat. And we were rehearsing and they wanted to do this and they wanted that. And, you know, we were blocking and, and um, eventually he said, you're not happy. And I said, well, no, you're doing great. But and he said, no, there's some, what is it? What is it that's in your head? And the producer said, Jervil, let them do whatever they want. Let them. And I was like, yeah. And I said, what is it you want? And I said, all I know is that at the moment of I love you or I'm sorry, I want you to be face to face and like I want kind of 50-50, very graphic. And that you're like two kids and you're both holding your tortoise like you're holding like footballs, like kids in the playyard. And like, it's, I'm sorry, I, I love you. But just that you're both absolutely equal and that we can see you as, as two people that could be something. It's almost could be I do, but this is the moment of your, of your breakup and there's four of you in the relationship. You're out the two tortoises. And, um, and he went, okay. He said, well, let's work our way. Let's work our way from back from there. And it was amazing. He just then, once they, they knew they had the freedom to do, I said, that's the most important. I just want to be able to repeat this, this, this frame. And so, you know, that was him. And then Judy, on the other hand, was, I had to invent a note after a first take. Like she was extraordinary. The day I spent with her down in her house, she's very blind. And so like we had to send her the text. The script was about that thick because the type had to be so huge and you're sitting in the sitting in the in the in the window. And um she's, you know, such a such she just done Philomena and she was such a and she'd been shooting in Ireland and really, really lovely woman and but anyhow we would do a take and she would just I mean that it would be flawless but like I needed it for either or we were out of focus or something or I needed another go for and I was going and I had to walk across trail just seemed like the longest walk so I was going to invent something to say in fact and I remember saying to her at one stage uh, yeah that was great Judy can we just do one more and this time you know when you went over there like I wasn't able to give any emotional direction because she just it was it was pitch perfect and and I was giving her an action like who gives an action direction and it's like you know you went over there and you picked up your knitting and she said what did I do oh I don't oh I don't know what I did why don't I just do something different and I went that'd be great Judy thank you thank you (laughs) yeah I think what's lovely about that is that that playfulness that you're talking about because that's that's you as well I mean that's 
who you are. That's your influence as well. But that really translates to the screen of that film. You feel that when you're watching it, you know, and that's not something you can fake or create. I am conscious of time and conscious of a lot of different questions coming in. I'm going to bring it down back down to reality for a minute that I could listen to you talking about Judy Dench for about an hour in total. It's so beautiful. But we had a great question in there from Grania Gavigan, who is, as you know, a, a really talented editor and also director. She made a beautiful film about swimming last year, which closed out our WIFT showcase. But she was asking about, you know, we are living in lockdown. I know we're, we're, we're coming out of it, hopefully, not to return, hopefully. And, you know, you're looking, we're all looking to the future. And you're someone who's in very high demand with your work. You're working at a very high level, extremely talented. How do you see this return to production? And, and in that, we had a great question from Grania. She wanted to ask you what your thoughts on how you think production and post-production might play out in regards to COVID restrictions, especially in relation to potential remote editing setups and the impact that that might have on how you like to work with an editor. Well, gosh, I mean, none of us really know what's going to happen, but I certainly have a lot of fears about what's going to happen. I mean, going to the editing part of it first, I mean, nothing replaces being in the room with with an editor and I love the editing process the script is written three times on the page you know on on on, on the set with the actors and then in the edit you know the st- you never stop finding new levels to the story and editing as it is to have in an American drama of only four days is 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 soul destroying you know so obviously you know here there there's much more so um and you know working with your editor and you know the whole point is like I said before you want to work with people who inspire you and who are your collaborators as opposed to you being their boss and and that time and 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 editing is all about time I mean it's just and you can't have enough time and you know even when you do a viewing with the producer about doing viewing something in the morning instead of the evening and you know just hold sight you know where your where your energies are and I mean and and they all come to play in the edit so I do think there'll be, I think there'll be just more and more pressure to, you know, that you can't be in the room. And I think that doesn't help anybody. I think there's so much that is said in the unsaid. You know, there's so many beautiful accidents that can happen in the edit. There's so much, you know, you sit and you talk with your editor, they might First of all, they're like a psychotherapist for the first couple because you've come off session, you spend all the time going, oh my God, I was supposed to do this. And oh my God, if you like, this didn't turn out, oh my God, it rained on that. And, you know, the nice, the nice editor would go, would you like to go and get a couple of coffees and come back in a couple of hours? And, but like they are like, because you're just wired when you come off session. I mean, I, I, editors are, I think, kind of extraordinary how they sit in rooms by themselves. And, and also they want you to come in with a fresh head and see the, uh, and see, see the work. Now, different editors work in different ways. When I worked in the Tudors, I, you know, editing two episodes and same on Fargo. And my experience has always been in those situations where the editors couldn't be more different. I mean, you get to the same place, but in very, very different ways. So, so yeah, I think... I, I, I mean, I think that um, it's, we, I'm going to have to fight to be in the room. And I think the reason you won't be able to be in the room is because of health and safety, which of course is a, but I have a big fear that, you know, COVID will, the director's role will become more technical and more, you know, and everything's going to be watched through Zoom cameras from executive producers and health and safety because the most 
the greatest crisis would be if an artist gets sick. If I get sick, I can be replaced. But if your lead gets sick and has to go into quarantine, then the production has to rise to a halt. And that is that the costs of that are. So that's how it will work on, on, on set. I've no idea. I was a week from pre-production on a, on a pilot of a new Sharon Horgan drama in the, in the States. Well, it was to be in Vancouver and moved it to the States. And um, so I'm waiting to hear when that will restart. But for example, in the opening, the opening scene, it's uh, about a family who moved from New York um, to uh, upstate to kind of save their marriage and, and, and family. So we meet the four of them in a car and their heads are all in somewhere different. And, um, but like, I want that very graphic four shot of four people in the same frame, but everybody is in a different space. And the husband turns around and says, I bet I know what you're thinking. And, and it, she kind of, you know, is lost in thought and we get a flash to what she's thinking. And she's been thinking just a flash of where, where she last had sex with this man she'd had an affair with. So there's the first 30 seconds. And obviously the first thing the producers want to know is how are you going to shoot the sex scene? You know, because now the, but then the, that's the obvious that's the obvious thing. But the thing I hadn't thought about was when the lead actress said to me, how are you going to shoot the car scene? I was going, uh, you know, because we all can't be in the car at the same time. So, I, I mean, to tell you the truth, my brain hadn't even gone to that, that far. And then, you know, to shoot a car scene like that, you're on a low loader, you know, there's two cameras. So, I, I mean, I, I really think, um, I don't know how it's going to be. Uh, also, I mean, I'm somebody who's very up close and personal with notes on set. I kind of go up and speak to, you know, you know, so that each note is private to the, to the actor. I'm kind of, um, I'm very hands-on. I'm very, I'm very tactile, which is either endearing or frustrating, but in the, in the, even in Me Too and with Charles of Bullying, I have to be so careful um, of that because, you know, for, for obvious reasons. So just our behavior is going to become more and more modified. And sometimes your character is in your behavior. You, you know, you're, as I say, you can be explaining something and I don't know, it, it, it's very, and then put a mask over your face. And I mean, already you go, you know, into a shop and you can't hear what, what somebody has said. So I, I really, I really worry about, about things becoming about information and about and about distance and how uh, I mean what I love in a in 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 drama between characters is an intimacy and an honesty of intimacy. So how can you still communicate that in a kind of a more like I did multi camera directing you know years ago, and my big frustration in that was not being able to see the eyes of you know the um, the camera person or the presenter. Everything went through a third party. And I think there's going to be more of that. So I, I do fear it. Um, yeah. So I really don't know how it's going to be, but it's going to be slower. It's going to be more difficult. And I think there's going to be a kind of a sense of big brother. We're being watched all the time. And I think we're going to have to work it out. And people saying we can do things through visual effects is, I mean, I'm not an effects uh, director. So I think ask us, let's see where we are this time next year. But I, I have, I have my, my fears. It is a strange place where, coming out of lockdown but we're moving into a, a an equally strange one as we as we learn and adapt and 
you know, I guess it's the same for you as it is for everybody, no matter what level you're working at. We, we're trying to reimagine a new way of the industry that we work in. I'm very conscious that there's loads of questions floating around and I'm not, we're not going to get to any of them because we're an hour and a half in now, Dervlin. I, I think it, it's not, we could listen for another hour, no problem, but I think it's maybe not fair on you. I want to, to, to move on a little bit, if that's okay, uh, to the last couple of questions. One is because this is women in film and television. And I would like to ask you about if you have had the thought in your career or think now that this is an unfair industry. And in light of recent movements, you know, like Me Too or the Harvey Weinstein trial or things like that, that how do you feel about gender equality in the industry? Are you, are you hopeful how do you feel about it here in Ireland and, you know, we're facing as women working in this industry? And then I have a really lovely question from somebody after that. Well, more positive one, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Gosh, it's um, difficult. I think, first of all, I would have probably say that I haven't been aware that it's been difficult for women. I mean, starting through, you know, in my career to start, um, because I guess I've never, in how I do anything, I don't think about, you know, um, I'm a woman there when they're getting an unfair chance over me. It's funny, I was brought up, I'm the eldest of four, there's two, two brothers and two sisters, uh, two, two boys and two girls. And, um, my parents were obsessed with fairness. My mother was always like, the boys had to cook, do the dishwasher. We did collect the milk bins, you know, so there was all, and then if they didn't, it was like, that's not fair. Why does he, you know, or, you know, my, my, my uncle was a truck driver and, you know, he took the boys. Why is he allowed, you know, go in the truck and not me? So there was just, um, so fairness has always been, and my mother was a very, you know, involved in, in, in everything. And so she um, led. So, and in the industry, and I suppose I said, because I started out seeing Anisha, I saw, you know, I saw a woman leading. So it is obviously unfair, but I wasn't, but I, I, it's not how I thought about things. I thought about how to do you know, and how can we make this happen? And, and if, if there was an issue, the issue was me rather than, if anything, I thought it was really hard to get a break outside Ireland. And if anything, you know, I always saw like my Irishness was against me rather than, and that, like that's something that I really wear, you know, on my sleeve, my Irishness, because I'm really proud of it. But trying to get that break out of Ireland was, was hard. You know, when I worked in, in, in Orchie or certainly in Ireland, like I thought being from west of the Shannon was made me more disadvantaged than, you know, when I was growing up, you know, we didn't get the access to Dublin Youth Theatre or the orchestras or, you know, so, so you, I suppose you could just go through life with that chip on your shoulder, but we didn't get. And, um, and so, again, it's just looking at things through a different prism of possibility rather than impossibility. And I know like because I'm a woman doesn't affect I, I think makes me strong and I mean it's so everything's so kind of integrated in all part one it's hard to separate being a woman from uh, from from anything else obviously there are you know and I think particularly in the film business and um I mean tv has attracted and through tv um management and producers be, you know I, I, has there are more women, I think, in roles of power in, in, in TV 
production in the producers, not 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 actually on, you know, not sets, because I think the hours that are required and just makes it impossible with um, having having children. And obviously the whole casting experience and everything that's with Harvey Weinstein, obviously people have had horrible experiences and um, it is. I suppose it is unfair, but I, I suppose when you're working, what you think about is how can I do this as opposed to why I can't do it. And so, I mean, and I see now my role is to give back, to be a positive role model to, you know, that it is a career, not a vocation. It is, you should be paid for it. You, I, you know, you should expect, I, you know, expect the same from you as a clapper loader, the woman earned props as I do from the guy. Like there isn't a, a difference. I think it's very difficult for, I mean, very difficult for women, I think, particularly in the camera department. And I've heard terrible stories about camera departments around the, the world production design. You know, I've worked with so many brilliant um, women. Um, I mean, the thing that surprises me where there's so few women often is in writing. Um, I mean, I think, again, that's changing, but that has kind of not made um, not made great sense for me. But now I think because of, of streaming TV, you know, there's such an appetite for female centric dramas, characters, issues, themes. So um, and also sometimes you self censor at it because you think that's just the way it is. And obviously what Black Lives Matter is showing us and the and the Me Too is it can be different and it should be different. And you fall into, that was, I mean, the brilliant thing that Panty talked about on, um, in, on the stage in Abbey Theatre about, you know, during marriage equality, about how we, how we self-censor and self-edit. How we check ourselves. How we check the ourselves. And, with Noah. and so I think somebody could sit there and really point out how I have deluded myself about being a woman and, and maybe, ha- I, I mean, possibly they, they could, but it's not, I, I, I'm not mindful of it. If I am, I move on because there lies anger and, 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 and bitterness. Like I will fight battles about needing more time, needing more money, needing to cast differently. And all of those are particular to what the production requires. And I obviously fight my fight the corner for somebody who's right for the work. And I, you know, I show bias, I'm sure, uh, towards women. I show bias towards Irish people when I'm abroad. You know, I, I mean, uh, so, you know, there's, there's, um, yeah, all you can do is try and keep doing things for the right reasons and have the yeah. courage to, to say when something is wrong and to make a difference if you can. I mean, I know that sounds a little bit, but. No, I mean, one of our main objectives in WIFT is lobbying and, great work that particularly people like Susan Lydia Chair and others have done over the years is to be knocking on those doors when nobody wanted to listen but it has and is beginning to make a huge difference here I mean the statistics are appalling particularly for female uh, for women directors and women writers in terms of funding but that is changing and the funders are definitely coming on board and uh, you know there are the younger generations I think will really reap the rewards of that as well and that that's positive and I really do I really want to ask you so many more things and like brilliant director Imogen Murphy is asking about how do you do your shot list and how do you work with your DP in prepping scenes but I think we covered an element of that early and um, Audrey was asking about uh, tell us about your script analysis process but I think you 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 answered to that quite well earlier 
can't have enough prep time and just always fight you know the more you can do in prep the more you can you're you know you know what you want that you can let it go or you can adapt on the on the set so just just yeah just prep 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 is 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 huge well i think as well we know you will be leaving us again soon to work away whenever the opportunity arises but i think it is you know it is an ongoing relationship with wift and you and i'd love to keep it going and maybe at some stage we'll get you in for for a master class and and do something really in a room where we're all together and do something really practical. That would be wonderful. I'm going to end on a lovely question that came in from uh, Louise Neenik. She's new to the board of WIFT, amazing director, really talented. And I think it's a lovely question that she has sent in. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, there's a few people I didn't get to your questions. Some of them I might be able to ask Dervla separately and get an answer for you. Otherwise, please hold them and we'll try and run an event with Dervla again. Um, because I feel like, there's so much more we could talk about, Dervla. I, I still have loads to ask you about. But lovely question in from Louise, which is, um, what do you dream of making? Gosh. What do I dream of making? Time. <laughs> um, I, uh, gosh, it's a, there's something about, you know, when you pick up a good book and, you know, the cover looks, you know, there's the, colors there's a right there's something about oh my god that 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 read was just it was better than I could have uh, you know ever imagined or you go you have this notion of who your perfect other half is so so what I mean is like what you dream is hopefully I want to keep open to the surprise uh being open to the being able to be surprised and to be kind of touched by something because I think that's one of the things to 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 stay curious and to and to be open to to surprise to change to and and I think when 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 you are touched touched uh, open to that then the drive to to achieve that because there's something a dream by its nature do dreams come true you know we we kind of reach for reach for the stars but you know maybe for so because I don't know if you can ever do anything that you, is the perfect, like, like is the perfect thing. Like one, sometimes one of my favorite things that I've done is the very first thing I did, which was when I worked in an Irish language series called Eku Eku. And I did a, a drama we called The A Story. And it was about a girl suffering from anorexia. Marina Nicavon wrote it. And I never knew less. And, um, and, you know, if I look back on it, I'm sure it's mortifying. But there was something about that virgin, that first experience, uh, you know, doing, working in there, working with somebody that you'd never worked with before. And there's just that feeling of, of delight and um, energy. And you said, like, I liked hill walking or reading. It's no two hills are the same. The weather is different. The wind is different. The egg sandwiches are on different bread. You know, do you have the tea or do you have the coffee out of the flask? What is the dream? And like every walk is extraordinary, is delightful. And, you know, what's the, <laughs> I know that's a, I, so there isn't any one thing. And that's, uh, and again, I think maybe turning them um, advantages into, or disadvantages into advantages. I'm not a writer. And so I'm really open to the possibility of reading something that I think that I can, you know, bring something to. Like one of the movies that I saw over, over lockdown, which has become my my favorite and um, my favorite new film is um, a Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
I mean, just, I was blown away by that. It's, you know, love story. It's about the gays, boy, virus and the period of it. It was, and, and so beautifully shot, incredible uh, performance, the story. Yeah, that's my new favorite film. God, if I could make that. That was like a three-hander, two-hander, three-hander. Is that the same? Is that the same director's girlhood? Uh, I think. Tomboy and and she did Tomboy and Girlhood as well. I'm. Um, it's a prison, but anyway, yeah. I love I loved that film as well. Yeah, super talented. So sorry, Louise. Um, I haven't um, answered that specifically, but um, you answered it nicely yeah. and poetically. Very, very beautiful. <laughs> We're going to start wrapping up. I'm also conscious that Sharon Lawless had a lovely question there about when do you ideally like to get involved in a project? But I think we kind of covered that. The earlier, the better. The more prep, the better. Um, and, then- and also being involved in the writing. I think that's a really, if you can be like, I think it's a key relationship for a director is obviously with the, with the writer because then you're part of, you're part of the process of the characters and where the edits and why the edits have happened. And yeah. Thank you to everybody for coming to this event. We still have a huge amount of participants still in the group, which is great. Thanks for sticking with us. I know we went over time. Dervla, I just wanted to say thank you so much on behalf of WIFT for coming and doing this with us. I know it's not your most favorite thing in the world to do. It's slightly behind baking, hillwalking, reading, theater, but I really, we really do appreciate it. You know, having you out there in the world, forging this path, we feel you're ours. We feel you're one of us. I feel it even more because we're both from Sligo, <laughs> but I, and having had the honor of working with you and seeing you in action on a rainy July down in Banastrand uh, was quite something, quite a privilege. And, you know, as an industry, I know that we just love you very much. And without sounding too trite, I were really proud of you being out there doing this amazing work and the work that you've done at home. You know, you've directed some great documentaries. You worked on the Tudors, you know, you've done and that project that you spoke about there, the Irish Language Project. You know, you you've done some great work here before you went to a world stage and you will again. And I love that you come home and you direct these beautiful artistic dance short films when you don't have to do any work like that whatsoever because it's important to you and I don't want this to be patronizing but we're so proud of the work you do in the world we're so proud to call you one of ours and you know you're just this great woman in the world and a great talent and I know I can speak from everyone in the group and the amount of people that came here for this event when we are zoomed out of it 60 people out of our, our a couple of hundred membership you know came here tonight to hear you and I think that's a great tribute to the talent that you are Dervla and we just I couldn't thank you anymore and um, thank you again so much and let's see you soon again and in person for a WIFT event that would be uh, a dream come true for all of us and then we can all go for drinks thanks again Dervla um, and thank you to everyone for coming and I'm really sorry there's loads of thank yous coming in here that was excellent thank you so much Dervla fascinating journey to listen to loads of loads of great comments and compliments and like I couldn't do most interesting thank you both uh, lots of thank you, thank yous. Well, thank um, you, thank you uh, very much. And thank you, those of you who've been listening. And thank you, 
uh, Vanessa Gilday. So thank you very much. And I think another thing that's really, really important for directors is to um, is to have a, a good relationship, to find a producer you work with. And I've had the joy of working with you, Vanessa, who just, it's all about, it's all about the production and, you know, giving so much to it. And I always think Lenny was so lucky to find Ed that they found each other. But, you know, you can't do it yourself in that marriage of a producer who gets you and you get, and that trust, because you need, you need to have, uh, faith and trust in 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 somebody because you're both laying your you know bearing your souls and um getting it wrong a lot of times before hopefully getting it right and you know Vanessa you're a a, a brilliant producer and an actor and so thank you everybody cheers Glenn. cheers everyone and whiffed this event was supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland until the next time thank you for listening For more content, podcasts and information, please visit our website at wft.ie.